Hey, this is Evan Jackson, video production director of New Life Church. Thank you for joining us today. I pray that today's message will not only challenge, but encourage and inspire you to see God's purpose for you. Enjoy the message. Today is a very important part of this series, and we're going to close it on this. And we're going to deal with some very current events and things that are going on in our world and how we can frame our thought patterns as a family to understand these things, to deal with them in our culture, and kind of where our battle, our battle uh, belongs. And so today's message is entitled, Stand Firm. Stand Firm. And the big idea for this is the enemy of everything that God has made good has been attacking the family from the very beginning. And over the millennia, his tactics have not changed. So we're going to get into that a little bit. Like, open up uh, your Bible, well, not yet. open up to chapter 3 of your Bibles, but we're going to put the verse on the wall that has been our key verse for this entire series, Genesis chapter 1. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female. He created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion. And God saw everything that he had made. And behold, it was very good. Saw that. (laughs) It was very good. What God made, the way God made it was very good. The things that God created were man, woman, man and woman in relationship with God, having married relations with each other, relations that lead to family, complementary image bearers that aid in the task of subduing and having dominion. What does that dominion mean? Building culture. Harnessing resources, creating civilization, all while enjoying relationship with God. That is what we are designed to do, and it is very good. It is very good. But there is a power that sets itself against all that God wills, and that God desires. There is a power that sets it. That God sees, what God sees as good, he loathes. What God creates, he seeks to kill. What God gives, he desires to steal. What God builds, he works to tear down. And what God loves, he destroys. How does he accomplish this task? We being children of God, he lies. He lies to us. He causes us to turn against the good God and all that he made very good. So Genesis chapter 3, let's pray. Lord, thank you for this time we can be together and we can study your word as as a body. 
Lord, that as we focus on what you have done and how good it is, God, I pray that we would be humble in our hearts. Lord, we would, we would look at your word as being the thing that we base our entire lives around. Lord, culture may come against what you say, but culture is not God. God, we pray that our hearts would be soft and able to take this information today. In Jesus' name, amen. Here we go. Verse 1. I'm going to read it right out so you guys don't think I'm making it up. Now, the serpent was the most cunning of all the wild animals that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say? Michael Seifach just preached a sermon on that very sentence. Did God really say? You cannot eat from the tree that is in the garden. And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit from the trees in the garden, but about the fruit of the tree in the middle of the garden, God said, you must not eat it or touch it or you will die. No. You will not die, the serpent said to the woman. In fact, God knows that when you eat it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. The woman saw that the tree was good for food and uh, delightful to, to look at, and that it was desirable for obtaining wisdom. So she took some of the fruit and ate it. She also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate it. Then their eyes were both opened, and they knew they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife Hid, uh, heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden at the time of the evening breeze. And they hid from the Lord, God, among the trees of the garden. So the Lord God called out to them and said, where are you? And he said, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. Then he said, who told you that you were naked? Did you eat? from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? The man replied, ready for this? The man replied, the woman you gave me, she gave me from the tree, and I ate. The Lord asked the woman, what is this you have done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me, and I ate. The serpent that you made. Deceived me, and I ate. Did God really say? Right from the beginning, the serpent went after the first good things. Right from the beginning, he went after the first good things. He created doubt in mankind's mind as to the goodness of God. He implied that God was holding out on them. God's holding out on you. He stroked human pride, causing them to imagine that they could attain godhood. This is Gnosticism in its purest form. What is Gnosticism? This idea that you can achieve or you can find some kind of secret knowledge that will cause you to be powerful. That's what Gnosticism is. This is Gnosticism in its purest form. And Gnosticism has taken its, 
It's form, different forms over the years. All right? The idea of being able to unlock power. John 8.44 says, he, meaning the devil, was a murderer from the beginning, not holding to the truth, for there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks his native language. I love that. When he lies, he speaks his native tongue. If you are being tempted by the devil, understand right now that what he is telling you is a lie, period. He doesn't know how to speak truth. There is no truth in him. Zero truth in him. 'For he is a liar and the father of lies. That's a very interesting passage. Let me tell you why. Because we live in a culture, and we have a hard I have a hard time. I get frustrated with discerning lies that the culture is. But I want you to know today that those little baby lies are birthed from the father of lies. They come from the father of lies. What the devil is really leading them to believe through his lies and half-truths is that God is, um, what God says is very good is in fact not good enough. What God says is very good is not good enough. This is the great lie that we've been grappling with ever since. All man-made philosophies and extra-biblical religions are predicated on the idea that we can do better. Right? We can do better than this. That's old. That's, you know, limiting. That's dogmatic. It's not good enough. That God-ordained institutions and moral structures are limiting rather than fulfilling. That we can do a better job ordering our own world. That we don't need God and his way and his truth and his life. Right from the beginning, we start to see this play out in the blame game. It isn't my fault. It was the woman's fault that you gave me. Let's not, let's not forget, God, you gave her to me. It's not my fault. It was a serpent that you created. See, it's all your fault. Both of these arguments shift the blame ultimately to God as the source of the problem. They knew God. This is in quotes, remember. They knew God. Yet they did not glorify him as God or show gratitude. You'll see that in the verse we're going to read in a minute. This is the beginning of the rift in the very good first things. The dysfunction that we see in the primary and most important institutions, religion, marriage, family, and ultimately society. This is where this comes from. Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1 says this, verse 21. For they knew God. For though they knew God, right? They did not glorify him as God or show gratitude. Who's that talking about? Well, I think it's talking about Adam and Eve, and I think it's talking about every other human being in the planet. 
They knew God, and they did not glorify him as God or show gratitude. Instead, their thinking became worthless, and their senseless hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. See how this all plays? And ex- exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds, four-footed animals and reptiles. What is this? This is the beginning of idolatry. They didn't glorify, they knew God, yet they didn't glorify him as God or were grateful for what God had done. So they started to be vain in their own thinking and they started setting up idols that were in their own image or the image of the created rather than the creator. Therefore, God delivered them over to the desires of their heart. What's the desires of man's heart? To sexual impurity. So that their bodies were degraded among themselves. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worships and served what has been created instead of the creator who is praised forever. Amen. For this reason, this is a progression. For this reason, God delivered them over to disgraceful passions. Their woman exchanged natural sexual relations for unnatural ones. The men, in the same way, also left natural relations with women and were inflamed in their lust for one another. Men committed shameless acts with men and received in their own persons the appropriate penalty of their errors. Wow. That's what the scriptures say. This very direct portion of scripture in Romans gives a progression. Pride leads to idolatry. Pride leads to idolatry. Idolatry leads to immorality. Immorality leads to depravity. Individually and socially. This has been playing in our world ever since the incident in the garden. Human pride leads to idolatry, which when when embraced by society leads to a breakdown of morality. Have we not seen a breakdown in morality in our world? Come on, be honest. You may not like where this is going. You may not like, you may see where pastor's going with this, and you may not like what, but we cannot deny that morality has been broken down in our culture. As we embrace immorality into social norms, we experience a complete societal implosion of depravity. Depravity is societal, excuse me, depravity is societally unsustainable. And everything starts to unravel. Everything starts to unravel. What what does the scripture say about that? When we get to this depraved stage in society, this is what starts happening. Verse 28 And because they did not think it worthwhile to acknowledge God, God delivered them over to a corrupt mind so that they do what is not right. What is that corrupt mind? Could get really really nasty really quick. Well, here we go. They are filled with all unrighteousness, evil, greed, and wickedness. They are full of envy, murder, quarrels, deceit, and malice. 
well, I didn't think you were going there, Pastor. I didn't think the scripture was going there. I thought it was going to get more graphic. This is pretty much what we do, right? This is, not, this is not crazy stuff. This is just becoming norm in our society. These types of things. What, what else is there? They are gossips. This is a pretty, I mean, let's be honest. We would think of gossip as kind of like a, you know, an acceptable Christian sin. <laughs> it's a, you know, it's not a big deal. It's a big deal. They're gossips, slanderers, God-haters, arrogant, proud, boastful, inventors of evil. So I, I come across things in my, our world like, how could anybody do that? just seems so obviously evil. There you go. They invent evil things. This is a big one. Disobedient to parents. It's in there. When we get to a depraved culture, guess what? The kids don't obey their parents anymore. Senseless, untrustworthy, unloving, unmerciful. All they, they knew God's just sentence that those who practice such things deserve to die. That's the judgment that we have under the law. That judgment under the law is that people who practice these things are deserving of death. Often we talk about in church cultures like Bad sins and, you know, white sins or white, little white lies and bad sins. I want you to see here that what we sometimes would consider bad sins were just the beginning of all the sins that happen when, in a depraved society, and they're all bad and they're all deserving of death. They did not only, uh, so this, those who practice such things deserve to die. And then it says this, and this is what I find Troubling. Not that all this stuff isn't troubling. They not only do them, but they applaud others who practice them. I just read to you right out of God's word. What God says is not acceptable. How pride leads to idolatry. How idolatry leads to immorality. How immorality leads to depravity. And that depraved, depraved state is all-encompassing in society. And we are as guilty if we applaud it and celebrate it. We are coming to the end of June, which is Pride Month. It's a big thing in our culture right now. What do we do about all of this? And I want to talk about it a little bit today. I know this is going to be a struggle for some people. But what I'm saying is this. How do we deal with what the Word of God says is not good? How do we deal with it? Do we just ignore it? Or do we celebrate it? Good questions to ask, and hopefully we can deal with them a little bit today. In our humanistic post-Christian society, we are seeing these play out in rapid succession. We rejected God for the ideology of humanism, which means man is ultimate, which inevitably leads to where we, uh, it always leads, abandoning morality that coincides with the Judeo-Christian values. 
When those boundaries are torn down, out goes the institutions that were based on those morals. Once those boundaries come down, the institutions that were based in those morals are superb, they're, they're gone. Such as traditional marriage between a man and a woman. Sex being enjoyed within the confines of that marriage. Pastor's picking on the LGBT community this morning. No, I'm not. There are a lot of people who are traditionally attracted who are not obeying God's word for sexual behavior. Parents, uh, parents exercising authority over their children and imparting objective truth. That goes out the window. Parents exercising authority over their children and imparting objective truth. Children being respectful because they know that what their place is as being subject to their parents who are in turn accountable to God. All these, all these morals go out the window and society starts breaking down. Here we are today with a society that is struggling with what women are and what men are. What is a man? What is a woman? This forcing a radical transgender ideology in schools to children as young as five and six years of age. You're like, well, not here. I have proof with my own children that this stuff was happening in their school. We had to have a meeting with the principal to say, if anything like this happens again in our classroom, we want to know so that we can opt our children out of it. My daughter was five. I'm just saying, it's happening. It's happening. An ideology that is completely untethered from biblical truth or even scientific reality. We are encouraging our children to reject biological determinism and promote um, permanently altering their chemical and physical characteristics because of an idea, listen to this, because of an idea that I know better than what it says. We are buying into the same lies from the garden. Did God really say you're a boy? Did God really say you're a girl? God knows, this is the lie of the devil, God knows if you take matters into your own hands, you will be like him, being able to create yourself in your own image, however you see fit. That is the lie. This is happening in a hundred different ways in our society, as well as, move for, uh, as we move from the immoral stage of this uh, Romans 1 into the morally depraved stage. I feel like from reading this passage and seeing our culture the way it is, we have slipped recently passed, very recently, passed the immoral stage into this depraved, beginning of this depraved stage. Things are just getting really crazy really fast. So you're saying to me, okay, pastor, what do we do with this information? What do we do with this information? Are we supposed to hate trans people or homosexuals? No. If you're getting that from this message, 
you're missing the whole point. What did Jesus say we should do? That's all you should want to know, right? That's all you should want to know. I'm just showing you what the Word of God says about culture and how things have, and how it mirrors our own culture. But what you want to know today is what does Jesus say we should do about it? Jesus said, love God and love people. What did he say? He said, love God and love people. Knowing something is wrong does not give us the right to treat people wrong. Do you hear what I'm saying here? Knowing something is not biblical, it, is, it goes against God's word, does not give us the authority or the right to hate people. Jesus said, love God and love people. Let me show you an example of what I'm talking about. John chapter 8. In much of this, we're talking about sexual sins and things like that. So let's give, a, let's give apples for apples to some degree. John chapter 8, verse 2. At dawn, he went down to the temple again, and all the people were coming, in, uh, coming to him. And he sat down and began to teach them. This is Jesus. Then the scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman caught in a sexual sin, making her stand in the center. Teacher, they said to him, this woman was caught in the act of committing adultery. In the law of Moses, commands us to stone such a woman. So what do you say? This is exactly the question we're asking. What do we do? The law, the law of condemnation says that this is a punishable sin, right? The other passage said, we know these things are not right, according to the word of God, that they all were deserving of death. So what do we do with that information? What do we do with that information? They asked this to trap him, and I think that's what the culture wants to do with the church. They want us to be the bullhorn-toting haters that they think we are. They want to trap him in order that they might have evidence to accuse him. The world has not changed. So this is what Jesus said. Well, let's first off decide what Jesus did. They're waiting for him to give his answer. He just, let's go. Awkward, right? They're waiting for an answer. What is he doing? Doodling. Nobody knows exactly what Jesus was doing on the ground, but this is, this is the image you should have in your head. It's awkward. It's awkward. So what does Jesus do? Stoops down and starts writing in the ground with his finger. When they persisted in questioning him, because it is awkward, like, okay, let's go here, right? It's awkward. Let's, what are you doing? I see a smiley face in the ground. Is that? <laughs> I don't know what he was writing on them. But when they persisted in questioning him, they, he stood up and said to them, the one without sin among you should be the first to throw a stone at her. And he stooped down again and continued writing on the ground. Just blinders on. Just, 
started riding on the ground. Now, what was he riding on the ground? We don't know. Theologians have speculated for the last 2,000 years what they were riding. Was he riding the Ten Commandments in the ground? Maybe. That would be a good thing to write in the ground uh, based on what they're gonna, what's going to happen next. Or maybe he was actually writing the individual sins of the people holding rocks. Or maybe he was just doodling. We don't know. We don't know. But this was the response of the people after that statement. He, without sin, cast the first stone at the woman. Then he stopped down and he started writing again. When they heard this, they left one by one. This is very interesting that this is included. Starting with the older men. Why would the older men drop their stones first? What? Anybody? I think it's because they've had more life to sin. They had more red in their ledger. And they're like, oh, dang, I got to go. <laughs> See ya. Uh, and the younger guy's like, oh, come on, let's go. I thought that was interesting. I read it again. I was like, wow, that's, that's, that's potent. And then only he was left with the woman in the center. Where, why, how come Jesus didn't leave? The only person with the authority to throw a stone at the woman was Jesus himself. Only person qualified to chuck a stone was Jesus himself because he was the only one in that group that was without sin. So what did he do? What did he do? Ready? Here we go. Jesus stood up and said to her, woman, where are they? Like he was just doodling and he looked up, oh, they're all gone. Has no one condemned you? No, Lord, no one, she answered. Neither do I condemn you, said Jesus. Go, and from now on, do not sin anymore. That's the end of the story. She was caught. She did, a, she did, she did sin. She actually was involved in sexuals. One of the questions is, where's the dude? Because sexual sins include two people. Why do they grab the, the one woman out, the poor lady, and, and, you know, where's the guy? Almost like it was entrapment to some degree. Anyway, that's not the part of this sermon today. But the idea is this. She was caught. She was caught dead or not. She was definitely sinning. And according to law, she was worthy of death. And Jesus says, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. And then Jesus followed her around for the rest of her life, figuring out whether she was going to sin again. Is that what the rest of the story is? Jesus followed her around. Oh, be careful. Is that what he did? No. He said, I neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. And she may have gotten right back in the sack with somebody. We don't know. We don't know. The Bible never says it. The fact of the matter is, is that Jesus did not condemn her. He did not condone the behavior. That was on her. She has a will and a right to do what is against this book. 
Jesus, knowing the truth and speaking the truth, was his job. What does the Bible say about Jesus? What was his role on this earth? Because we want to know what Jesus' role is on this earth so we can know what our role is on this earth. Ready? Here we go. John 3, 16, you know it. For God loved the world in this way, that he gave his only son so that whoever believed in him would not perish but have eternal life. Why did Jesus come? For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. Interesting. Interesting. Anyone who believes in him is not condemned. But, here's the other part. Anyone who does not believe is already condemned. They're already condemned by their, by their sin. They don't need you and I coming and, and condemning them doubly. They need us to come in the name of Jesus and tell them the truth of God's word and love them into the kingdom. Knowing what's right doesn't give us the, the authority to condemn people. There's a difference, folks. There's a difference. We need to know the truth and stand on the truth. But we've got to be careful about our actions as Christians. He came, um, anyone who believes in him is not condemned, but anyone who is not believed is already condemned because he does not believe in the name of the one and only Son of God. Our battle is not against people. God made them and said that they are very good. Our battles against the enemy of all that God made good. And if you don't believe he's around, and you don't believe that he's real, then I don't know what you're going to do. You're definitely going to be con condemned people because you think it's on them. We live in a spiritual realm as much as we live in a physical realm. And there's an enemy of our souls who hates everything that God has made good, and he wants to destroy it. And sometimes, even as Christians, we play right into his hand in destroying people. 2 Corinthians chapter 10. For although they, we live in the flesh, we do not wage war according to the flesh. Since the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but are powerful, hey, but are powerful through God for the demolishing of strongholds. We demolish, here we go, what do we demolish? Arguments. And every proud thing that raises up against the knowledge of God. And we take every thought captive to obey Christ. Who does this? We do this to us. When the world argues against the truth of God's word, we take that thought captive. We say, no, I'm bringing it under the, 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 the authority of God's word. What does it say? Every proud thing that is raised up against the knowledge of God, we tear it down. We don't believe in it. We stand firm on this word. And we take every thought captive in obedience to Christ. We demolish arguments. What is that? We like to make, we like to argue. We want to go out into this world and we want to argue everything. The, the world does not need another bullhorn-toting Christian hater out there screaming at people and arguing with them because they're, they're wrong. Are they wrong? I believe that many of them are according to the word of God. But it's not my job to condemn them and argue with them. We're supposed to tear down the arguments, tear them down in ourselves and in the world. 
How do we battle the enemy? That'd be a good question to know. The answer to. By, what's the title of the message? Standing firm. By living in God's truth. By living in God's truth. By passing that truth down to our children. By not allowing ourselves to be taken in by the lie. By loving people enough to not celebrate the lie in their lives. And by giving them the good news of the gospel. The world wants us to feel like if we don't celebrate the evil in the world, then we, by de facto, hate people. That's not true. It's not true. When your child does something that you know is not correct, and you do not celebrate that bad behavior, does that all, all of a sudden mean that you hate your child? No, in fact, to discipline that or to correct that would be love. But when we as a culture, as a Christian culture say, no, we don't agree with that according to God's word. We don't think that's how God designed the world to be. Um, they, but we love you. They'll turn around in your face and say, no, you don't. You hate me. No, I actually don't. I actually don't hate you. I actually love you. Ephesians 6, 11. Put on the full armor of God that you may stand against the schemes of the devil. That's who we're fighting against, the schemes of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers of this darkness, against evil, spiritual forces in the heavens. That's what they were fighting in, in the Garden of Eden, and that's what we're fighting today. His tactics have not changed. They're the same. For this reason, take up the full armor of God so that you may be able to resist in the evil day. And having prepared everything, take your stand. Take your stand. Stand, therefore, with truth like a belt around your waist, righteousness like the armor in your chest, and your feet sandaled with the readiness for the gospel of peace. In every situation, take up the shield of faith, which is which you can extinguish all the fiery arrows of the evil one. What are his fiery arrows? They are his lies. Faith in God extinguishes the lies of the enemy. Take up the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. Verse 18, I love this. Pray at all times in the spirit. With every prayer and request, and stay alert with all perseverance and intercession for all the saints. That's what Adam and Eve did not do. They didn't stay alert. They let their guard down. They let the enemy give half-truths and lies as if they were truth, and they were deceived. The Bible, the biblical way to stand firm is by example, not by bullhorn. 
by example, not by bullhorn. The world doesn't need another bull-toting Christian hater yelling at them the things that they don't believe. They don't actually believe them. They don't believe in God. So you yelling at them that they're doing something against God, they're like, yeah, so what? Why would they care? Why would they care? The only reason they're going to care is that they see people who love them, who show them a better way, who proclaim the gospel in deed and in word, and then they're going to start believing in God, and then maybe they, should, they will start caring. But it's not going to happen the other way around. Rather, they need a true follower of Christ who stands firm, unyielding to the cultural degeneration, to live out the way of Christ in front of them. 1 Thessalonians 4 says this, for this is God's will. Oh, I want to know God's will. Well, here you go. This is God's will, your sanctification. That you keep away from sexual immorality. That each of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor. Not with lustful passions like the Gentiles who do not know God. Just take care of your own stuff. You got, listen, you got plenty to work on. You got plenty to work on in the church. You got your families to deal with. You got plenty to work on. Deal with that. Clean your own house. Consequently, anyone who rejects this does not reject man. So if somebody, if you're talking to somebody and they reject the truth of God's word, they're not rejecting you. What are they doing? They're rejecting God, who gives you the Holy Spirit. Verse 10, but we encourage you, brothers and sisters, to seek to lead. Listen to this. This, is, this. this changed my month. I was really struggling with the cultural depravity of our, of our world right now. I was really struggling with it. And this verse changed my, changed my perspective. But we encourage you, brothers and sisters, to seek to lead a quiet life. To mind your own business. Mind your business. And to work with your own hands. Do your stuff. Worry about what you got on the table. There's plenty of stuff for you to get right in your own tribe. Work with your own hands as we commanded you, so that you may behave properly and pers- uh, uh, in the presence of outsiders and not be dependent on anyone. That's what we should be doing. Mind your business. Learn to live a quiet life, a steadfast, stand strong in this, and by your example, show the world a better way. Put the bull horn down. Pastor, what, what, what are you talking about the bullhorn? I don't know if you guys know this, but people like to use bullhorns in a protest. Uh, I don't know if you've seen this on the news recently, but bullhorns are often used to spread a message of hatred and upsetness and frustration. Listen to me, folks. I'm not saying that we shouldn't proclaim. That's my job. I'd be out of a job if I didn't, you know, proclaim the gospel. What I am saying is this. Get your business right. And stop worrying. That's why I was worrying about the world who doesn't even believe in God. Affecting your heart and soul and mind. 
Listen, just do what God has called you to do. What has he called you to do? Love God and love people. That's how we slowly win back the culture, by the family. And it's not just a clever tie-in to the series titles. By the family, by building little God-centered civilizations inside the greater ungodly civilization. We win it from within by keeping the first things. Guess what? If the, if the word of God holds true and there is this societal degradation from pride to idolatry to uh, immorality to um, depravity, the culture around is going to fall apart. We better make sure that our civilizations inside the church are sound. Because when everything else falls apart, where are they going to look? They're going to look to the only civilization that's still standing, and that is going to be the church if we do our job. By keeping the first things first. By being male and female image bearers of God. By loving our spouses as Christ loved the church. By raising our children to love God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love their neighbors as themselves. By exercising dominion over the peace of this world that God has gifted to us to manage. Stay in your lane. Work the land that God has given you dominion over. And for heaven's sakes, be grateful. Be grateful. They knew God. But they didn't honor him as God, and they were not grateful. By standing firm in a spiritual battle that we are always fighting, that is how we impact the world. I want, you, I want to read this one passage to you in closing. Remember we talked about Moses a few weeks ago? Just like Moses said to the people of Israel as they stood overlooking the vast expanse of the Red Sea in front of them and the host of the Egyptian military behind them. What did he say to them? And this has been so helpful for me in my own peace of mind. Don't be afraid. Stand firm and see the Lord's salvation that he will accomplish for you today. The Lord will fight for you. <laughs> you must be quiet. <laughs> now it's for me more than maybe for you, but God's, this is a battle that God's going to win. We are not God. Therefore, the battle is not ours. We stand firm. We love God, love people, stand firm on his word and show people what the word of God says Christianity and a God-centered life is all about. That's how we win the, the culture battle. That's how we win it. Because if the word of God is true, the, the greater culture is going to deteriorate and fall apart if we can keep the culture and our little families and our family and our homes and our churches strong. When the culture falls apart, they're going to, they're going to grab onto every bit of life raft that is left in our world, and that will be us. And we can say, listen, God loves you. Jesus loves you. I love you. Let me show you what the Word of God says.
Lord, we thank you for the family. We thank you for those first good things. Help us to keep the first things first in our heart and mind and strength. First off, to love you with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Secondly, the institution of marriage. God, help our marriages in this church, in the church, the greater church, to be stronger than they've ever been. Lord, it's, it's pathetic that the church has a marriage divorce statistic that is more volatile than the world. It shouldn't be that way. Lord, help us to recapture what it looks like to live in a Christian marriage. And God, the family, help us to impart the truths of God's word to our children. Lord, help us to fight against the confusion that is out there in the world in our own homes and take dominion over what you have gifted us. And Lord, help us to be grateful. Help us to honor you by how we interact with the world of people out there who don't believe in you. Help us to, by our word and by our actions to show them how much you love them. Help us to be a people who loves you with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Loves our neighbor as ourselves and stands firm on the word of God. Lord, what you said is very good. Help us to, hot, uh, to elevate as very good in our own words. In Jesus' name we pray this day. Amen. God bless. Have a great week. Amen.